You can be seated, and if you'll open your Bibles to Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapter 16. A lot to get through this morning. I'm going to dig right in. We're, we're ending our series on Christian friendship by thinking about spiritual warfare at work in and against Christian friendship. And our text for this morning is Matthew 16, 15 through 23. In verse 15, Jesus says to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From this time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So first, let's just kind of go through what we've learned already in this series uh, by seeing a number of the things we've already discussed evident in this passage. First of all, uh, the, the, the definition of Christian friendship is right here. The definition of Christian friendship, the, the function of Christian friendship, as we've talked about for two weeks, is to see another as God sees that person. And so we see at the beginning in verse 15 that Simon is seeing Jesus rightly, right? He's seeing Jesus as the Father has revealed him to be. And, and, and then we also just are reminded that that ability to see another as God sees them is a gift from God. Jesus says in verse 17, uh, you're blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. And then we see this just this incredible blessing of Christian friendship. You know, one of the, the, the basic kind of uh, incentives to being a pastor is you get a front row seat to see transformation. You know, it's like if, if, you, if you like seeing God change people, you know, being a pastor is kind of a good gig because you get to see up close and personal transformation. It's a blessing to see God at work. And so this is the blessing of Christian friendship, really. The, the blessing of Christian friendship is to see the way that God sees, is to see people the way that God sees people. But then we also see the fragility of Christian friendship. You know, I've been uh, coming to terms with a truth that uh, I'm still not sure I totally grasp it, but it's getting there. And that is simply that when Christian friendships break down, they should sting, of course, but they should not surprise us. Because in reality... Every one of our relationships is wholly dependent on grace. And there's a million things that can 
if God does not sustain us. And so Peter, in verse 15, is at the top of the mountain. He sees Jesus clearly, but then by the time we get to verse 21, that functioning Christian friendship has broken down. He is no longer seeing Christ as God would have him to see him. He is, he is seeing Christ as he sees him, as Peter sees him. And I think it's important to note that this is fragile, not only because we are sinners, but because Satan is at work in the dynamics of Christian friendship. And that's what we'll primarily discuss this morning. In this particular case, Jesus looks to Peter after Peter has had this friendship breakdown. Peter's no longer looking at Jesus the way that God sees him. Peter's looking at Jesus the way that Peter sees him. And, uh, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I think it's also important to note that, that when we fail in our Christian friendships and we stop seeing others as God sees them and begin to see them as we see them, we become a hindrance. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. Two weeks ago, we looked at a C.S. Lewis quote in which he said, in some way or another, we are, either, we are helping each other all arrive in one of two destinations, one glorious and one terrible. Uh, I would just add to that and say that when we see, our, when we see the other as, Christ, as God sees them, we are helping. When we see the other as some, something else, we are hindering. So Jesus says behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. And lastly, another thing we've touched on, not only in this series, but repeatedly, is just this idea that sometimes hardship is helpful and comfort is a hindrance. Uh, what Peter is doing when he pulls Jesus aside is to say, far be it from you, Lord, you'll never suffer that kind of a deal. Peter's trying to be, what's the word? Easy, kind, speak goodness into Jesus' life, try to help Jesus avoid this terrible fate. And, and it's, it's interesting to realize that, that in those motivations, he's actually a tool to die. So it's very interesting. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Stop wishing me an easy life. Stop. And then we see Jesus functioning as a good friend in the very next section of Scripture, where in verse 24 and onward, he says to the disciples, if anyone wants to be my follower, let them take up their cross and follow me. Which is sort of the opposite of what Peter was doing, right? Peter was trying to get the cross out of Jesus' life, and Jesus is trying to get the cross into our life. So that's the idea that some of the basic mechanics of Christian friendship that we see, uh, that we've talked about before, that we see in this passage. I think this is a passage that's really good, very helpful in that respect. And now let's just talk more explicitly about spiritual warfare within the dynamics of Christian friendship. So the devil has a simple strategy that we find outlined explicitly in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, and that is simply that the devil wants to keep people from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And I don't think I'm overly simplifying when I simply say that Satan's goal is to keep people from seeing Jesus properly. Everything, everything 
in life depends on seeing Jesus properly. If a person that doesn't, if a lost person doesn't see Jesus properly, they can't be saved. And if a saved person doesn't see Jesus properly, they won't be sanctified. The whole trick, the one thing, it's like I gave you one thing to do, see Jesus properly. That's the whole trick to everything. It, that's really just the only thing we're trying to get right, to see Jesus properly. And so Satan's central strategy, it seems, and I'll kind of give you some reasons that support this assertion, Satan's central strategy is to obscure Christ, right? To, to obfuscate, uh, obfuscate Christ. Craig said he didn't have that in his dictionary. So, so let me give you some, some evidences of, of that being the grand strategy of Satan. Firstly, all of the heresies of church history, I would submit to you, break down into essentially three categories that all involve separating God. So the first set of heresies in church history would be now I, devil, right? Um, like Athanasius did. And, uh, and I would say that, that, that there's a first category of heresies that all try to separate the nature of gods. These would be Trinitarian heresies. These would be, these would be like uh, uh, Marcionism in some respects. The Old Testament God is different from the New Testament God and so on and so forth. So there's this one category of heresies that are separating God from God. That's kind of how I would summarize it. And there's a second kind of heresy that is separating Christ from Christ. And these are Christological heresies. And these sort of involve separating his natures or his attributes. And then there's a third group of heresies. And these involve separating the word of God. And, and I would include dispensationalism in this list. Just seriously, but, but not joking, not joking. Uh, the idea being any approach to the scriptures that holds the red letters up as more authoritative than the black ones is a heresy, and it's a separation of Jesus because Jesus is the Word, and he's written the whole Word of God. One of the ways that you'll hear this explained, again, uh, this will be heretical, is to say, you know, Jesus never said anything about fill in the blank, only Paul. No, Jesus spoke through Paul. So, so there's a whole collection of word separating heresies that are also kind of the same deal, pitting God against God. And that is uh, many, probably two years ago, we talked about what a scoffer is. In, in the Bible. And a scoffer is someone who pits God against God. This is the you saved others, but you can't save yourself kind of deal. Where you take one thing God has said against another thing God has said. This is what a scoffer is. So Satan's strategy throughout church history has been to turn God against himself, to separate his attributes, or to give people only a partial glimpse of God, specifically a partial glimpse of Christ. And that's what Satan is doing with Peter. He can't help the fact that in verse 15, the father swoops in through the spirit and gives him information about Jesus's messiahship. That, that, that happened. That's where we are. You know, Satan uh, can't help that because it's already done. But he swings into action 
to prevent Peter from seeing the whole Christ. Now, what do I mean by the whole Christ? Well, God has disclosed to Peter the majesty of Jesus. The, the understanding of Messiahship was high glory, high majesty, power, strength, dominion. Now, Satan swoops in. Jesus says to the disciples, I must go and die on a cross. And Satan swoops in to prevent meekness to, uh, from being conjoined with majesty. Peter's already got the majestic part of Jesus. Satan's going to keep the meekness piece from being coupled in together and thus forming truly Jesus. Um, Peter has already accepted a, a kind of glory of Christ, right? This Messiah, King, this long-awaited deliverer. Peter's already got that, but that's all of Christ, right? That's a part of Christ. So Satan swoops in to prevent Peter receiving Jesus' words associated with not just the glory, but the grit. Not just the, not just the majesty, majesty, but the meekness. Satan swoops in and keeps in Peter's mind Christ from being fully Christ. Does that make sense? Uh, there we go. I think it was in December of 2019. Oh, those days. Those sweet, those sweet, those sweet days. We did a short run through something Edward said, uh, where he said that in Jesus is a conjunction of such diverse excellencies as otherwise would have seemed to be utterly incredible in the same subject. So we, we talked a lot about the diverse excellencies of Christ, an admirable conjunction of the diverse excellencies of Christ. And, and Edwards' quote is really this idea of majesty and meekness or sovereignty and suffering. It's the idea of these qualities that don't fit together, fitting together in Christ. These qualities, I should say, that don't seem to fit together, fitting together in Christ. Satan's strategy with Peter is to keep Peter from seeing the admirable conjunction of divine excellencies. Because, friends, that's truly Jesus. There are other strong men out there, and there are other loving men out there, but only Jesus is perfectly strong and perfectly loving. So as long as you can keep Jesus polarized in one little category of being, he isn't who he is in your mind. So this is Satan's strategy. This is what he's done through all of the heresies in church history. And this is what he's doing with Peter. He's keeping Peter from seeing the divine excellencies, the diverse excellencies, all perfectly harmonized in Christ. Uh, Edwards just listed a few of these just to keep keep hammering away at this idea. So Edwards lists a few of these as infinite glory and perfect humility, infinite majesty and transcendent meekness, reverence toward God and equality with God, infinite deserving of good being done for him, and infinitely patient evil done to him. Let's just stop. I just stop there for a second and say, what do we get if are they listed in? No, they're not numbered here. Let's take this top list, this top idea here. 
uh, go back, infinite deserving of good being done for him and infinitely patient of evil done for him. Let's do this. Let's say uh, we're going to incept you. you know? We're going to take, uh, we're going to take this side of the group and you only know about Jesus that, that, that he is infinitely patient of evil done to him. Okay. That's all, you know, that's all you see of Jesus, that he's infinitely patient of evil being done to him. Now let's take this group and say, all you know is that he's infinitely worthy of good being done to him. So let's say you are aware of the worthiness of Christ to be served in every way, but you're not aware that Jesus has suffered. And you are aware that Jesus has suffered, but you're not aware that Jesus is worthy of all good being done to him. I just split a church. Pretty cool, huh? I actually, I split a church and started two cults. That's like pretty efficient. That's the satanic strategy at work with Peter in this passage. He wants to keep the diverse excellencies from being seen together. So, so exceeding obedience and supreme dominion, I could do the same here. So you guys believe in the exceeding obedience of Jesus, but you don't know anything about his dominion. We'll throw you guys onto the other side. Again, two more new cults, two more new churches. Uh, absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation. So you get the idea. Now, the only way our human minds can deal with this stuff is to throw these into the buckets of kind of general ideas. And I think God is okay with this, even though I think he's okay with this in the same way that like you're okay changing your little kid's diaper, but you can't wait to move on. Uh, I have a feeling that as God communicates himself to us, it's sort of like changing a little kid's diaper. It's like, okay, it's like, you're my kid. No, I don't, I, I don't want to impute that on God. Um, I do believe that we will not have buckets of attributes in heaven. Jesus will just be Jesus. Now it seems as if God is, is willing, at least in some level, to condescend to the level of being categorized. He reveals himself in ways that allow us to categorize his attributes. But this is a very dangerous thing to do because they're not separate at all. But, but, but again, our brains are really limited. We're in intellectual diapers. So the, the basic uh, categories that I would just use as handles to move through this idea is strong and loving. But you could also say majestic and meek and you know a bunch of different ones. But those are the two basic categories transcendence and humility would be another way of saying this. Now, it doesn't matter much to the devil which of those two he keeps from you. He just doesn't want you to have them both, right? One of them alone isn't better than another one of them alone. So Satan is working on Peter in this way. And then you kind of ask, well, how did Satan get such easy access to Peter? <laughs> You know, he had just seen this clear view of Jesus as the Messiah. How come it was so quick? Like, like what's the deal with this almost immediate about face? And I want to I sensitize you to some things that were going on in Peter's life. Because we're going to bring this all home personally here in a minute. The first thing is, is that it, he was worldly. Peter was a worldly man. He was thinking in a worldly way here. How do I know that? Well, Jesus actually says... You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter had a cultural bias. 
You know, people have those. Peter had a cultural bias. Like everyone in his day and age, and like people in the Middle East to this day, there was room for a king, but not for a king and a cross, or a king on a cross. You got me? Like, theologically, the idea that God would send a king, got it. Cultural bias, where's it at? No possible way that king suffers on a cross. Peter was influenced by the cultural baggage associated with the cross. The cross was the most shameful thing possible. And so, 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 so Peter can see, so why did Peter get so easily caught up into being a tool for the devil? Well, partly because he has these worldly biases that he's already bringing into the situation. And for him, the worldly bias is a king without a cross. Cross, no. His cultural bias, his worldliness, prevents him from seeing that Jesus could be that. He can see that Jesus could be this, but he can't, he can't, he can't see that Jesus could be that. His worldliness gives a foothold for the devil because he is thinking like men think, not like God thinks. Uh, Satan has a little bit easier time getting him to see a disconnected or divided Christ. And there's a second kind of thing that's going on here, and that is we just need to remember that pets and pet sins. And worldliness and pet sins together do a lot of damage in the church. Um, Peter's pet sins, I think, I've worked really hard on, on understanding this, because at first my takeaway as I considered this issue was that Peter's pet sins, was he was afraid of suffering. And I realized that's not true. This is a guy who's ready to go to war with Jesus, this is really a guy who's ready to die with Jesus. And so I had to dial that in a little bit more and say, well, what's really going on here? And I would submit to you that Peter's pet sin was glory. His pet idol was glory and his fear of reproach. He was afraid of reproach because he loved glory. And I think I could take all the data that we get from Peter's life and line up a case for why Peter loved glory or that Peter loved glory and he feared reproach. But let me just give you the feared reproach piece. There are three times when Peter's a bad friend, clearly. There's, there's more than three, but let me just give you three. Uh, the first one is here, right? Where, where his allergy to reproach and his love for glory keeps him from being a good friend of Jesus. The second one is in the, uh, the, the, uh, the time where he betrays Jesus or denies Jesus three times. Again, fear of reproach. He's bullied by the crowd to deny Christ. And then even after he's Apostle Peter, and by and large, like a new man, there's a very interesting incident that happens that Paul discusses in Galatians 2. Peter is sitting with the Gentiles in Antioch, and he's dining with them. But then when the Jews come, he trashes his Gentile friends. He just turns his back on them. And I think you could say that the reason for that was this fear of approach. So let's combine these two factors at work in Peter's life. On the first hand, he's worldly. He, like everyone else, has a cultural bias against a suffering king. It's just not a thing, especially a cultural bias against the cross. And then on top of that, he has some personal sin things going on where he has an idol of glory and he fears reproach. So how does a good friend become a bad friend, Satan uses the world and the flesh. 
So you've got the world, the flesh, and the devil at work against Christian friendship. And finally, just add, as we're talking about Peter, just this final piece. If he had even just known this about himself, he himself. Right? So, so some of this just comes down to Peter has some self-awareness. And just to say, you know, I probably have worldly categories. And this is a key point for, that we'll, we'll, we'll hit later. I, I probably have some worldly categories that I don't even know about or that I'm acknowledging. And also, I probably have some idols and some fears that I might not be acknowledging. And these might be affecting how I'm viewing this person. So what's, what's this, the, the, the recipe for disaster is someone who has a low sense of self-awareness, but a high confidence in their perceptions. And that's Peter. Okay, so now let's ask, well, how does this actually work? Because this is a little bit of a unique situation with Peter and Christ. It's like, how does this actually work in the local church? How does Satan go about segregating um, the, 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 the unity of Christ in the local church? Well, again, remember, the this, this strategy of the devil is just to keep the attributes from being married. And, and how has God decided to display these attributes to the world through a local body of believers who are different parts of one body. So, so we are, the church is, we are a display of the diverse excellencies of Christ, admirably conjoined, improbably unified. And, and you display a piece of Christ and I display a piece of Christ and so on and so forth. The way that Satan attacks that is it's really important to know. It's really important to know about this stuff. So Romans 12, 3 through 8, is where, uh, where Paul says to the believers in Rome, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. And he says, you know, use your gifts to the measure of faith that you've received. And then he goes through a list of some of the gifts, and he says, if prophecy, then, then prophesy well. And if you have the gift of mercy, then use mercy well. And if you have the gift of service, then use service well. And if you have the gift of teaching, use the gift of teaching well. If you have the gift of leadership, and so on. There's two pieces there to think about. Number one, I would make the case that these gifts have a bit of a tent to them in which some of them are more tented in the strong category and some are more tented in the love category. So that some have more of a weight of authority and majesty, and some have more of a weight of meekness and mercy. So that God's design for the local church is to fill it with people who together are many parts of one body, and that not individually, but together, working together, we display to the world, and by the way, to ourselves, the excellent diversities of Christ. And that some of us are a little bit more wired to display the the loving categories, and some of us are a little more wired to display the strong categories. Again, those buckets aren't great, but I'm going to try to address that at at the end of this message, which we're reaching, by the way. But Jesus is uniquely capable of being all these things. You and I, that should be our aspiration. I, sh- I want to be all those things, but I also am not all those things. And I wasn't even built to be, to function as all of those things. 
you know, I go hang out with a group of guys on Monday night, and there's two guys that are a little older than me, and I was thinking about this sermon, I was thinking about these guys, and I was, I like both these guys a lot. I would spend lots of time with either of them alone, but I think in many ways they're each heresies <laughs> on their own. Like one of them shows Christ, one of, one of them shows Christ in one way really well, in another way really well, and both of them, their goal is to show Christ well in all ways, but they were created as tools, as instruments from God, and they have a natural gift in showing Christ in one way, and the other one has a natural gift in showing Christ another way, so that when they're together, they're not a heresy anymore. <laughs> and they represent all of Christ. But what would happen if those two guys started saying, you know, the way I represent Christ is the right way? This is the way. Your way is stupid. Leave. <laughs> Friends, this happens all the time. And that's why I think repeatedly when Paul's dealing with the issue of disunity in the church, he goes back to the metaphor of many parts in one body. And he goes back to this idea over and over again of don't think of yourself more highly than you ought because that kind of boasting makes you an instrument of the devil. It happens all the time. You'll see someone say, Jesus loved the poor, therefore loving the poor is the essential expression of Christianity. And you'll have another person say, Jesus preached many sermons, therefore teaching is the essential expression of Christianity. And another says, Jesus had many personal one-on-one conversations, therefore one-on-one -on -one discipleship is the essential expression of Christianity. But Jesus is way more complicated and seemingly contradictory in any one attribute or any, any one action. And when we do that, we are dividing Christ. You are an instrument. Your goal is to be as well-rounded an instrument as possible. But at the end of the day, you are an incomplete piece. of You are, you are a piece of something much bigger than yourself. And when you decide, and we all do this, this is our sin, when you decide that your view of Jesus is the view of Jesus, you become a hindrance. So one of the possible things to remember here is, like, why do we do that? Why, why do some of us boast in the strength of Christ against those who... Uh, walk in the love of Christ, and why do some of us, why do others who boast in the love of Christ, like, what's going on? Every culture has its biases. In Peter's day, now this is, this is, this is significantly my opinion, and I, I want to register that because I think it might be important in a moment. In Peter's day, that culture had a king without a cross. I believe, me, I believe that today our culture has a cross without a king. So, so in my opinion, again, my opinion, the culture is supremely lacking those strength categories in order for the culture to see all of Christ well. That's my opinion. 
That could be my opinion because I'm worldly, because I'm sinful, or just because like this is how God built me and I'm boasting in my design as the design. Or it could be because I'm right. Probably not, but I mean, no, no, I think, I think that's what it is, of course. <laughs> but notice what I'm doing here. I'm, I'm giving room for other possibilities. I think I'm right about that. C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters uh, said, we di- uh, well, C.S. Screwtape said, we direct the fashionable outcry of each generation against those vices of which it is in the least danger. So what I see is I see a lot of Christians emphasizing the meekness of Jesus when that is well-established in the cultural view of Christ. That's what I see. So, so this, is, this is what I'm seeing. The fashionable outcry of each generation against those of which it is in the least danger and fix its approval on the virtue that is the nearest, the vice, which we are trying to make endemic. And here's the basic way of thinking about it. The game is to have all of them running around with fire extinguishers whenever there's a flood. And this is where the worldliness and the indwelling sin come into to the issue. If your view of Jesus is, is blinded by your worldliness, you may emphasize one element of Jesus, which is exactly the element that everybody already accepts. The, the cross without the king. The meekness without the majesty. The, the gritty, the, the, the gentle without the glory. You may be walking with the culture as Peter did and seeing only part of Jesus as the one part one needs to know when, in fact, everybody already knows that part. Maybe. But I can tell you this for sure. Some of us were built as instruments to display things coming primarily out of one of the buckets And others of us were built to display things coming primarily out of the other buckets. And we should never, never, never become the tone Taliban. Policing another brother or sister's expression of Christ. Friends, I've become convinced, and I'm just as guilty as anyone else, but one of the most unloving things you can do to a Christian is to suggest they're unloving. You're just just questioning their salvation. Because all Christians are supposed to be loving. We're going to talk more about this in a minute. So how would Satan divide a church in a moment, in a cultural moment in which everything seems to be dividing? He would do that by causing, for for a variety of reasons, some to boast in one piece of Christ and others to boast in another piece of Christ and to have them turn on each other, bite and devour one another, thus keeping both them and the world from seeing all of Christ. I don't know if there's a simple way to sort out what's going on in your heart or my heart about all of this. I don't know if there's a simple way to say, am I being worldly or not? I would simply say this. Your best shot, most likely, is to be humble. Assume stuff's going on in you that you don't know. That would have just been nice for Peter. But then just ask, are you afraid of rejection then that's going to bias you to present a Jesus that is more culturally acceptable. Some of us are afraid of disorder, like like ruins, like Grecian Roman ruins. Like some of us are afraid of the collapse of the civilization. That's going to cause biases 
in the uh, strong section, strong area. So know yourself. But more than that, know that it is God's goal, God's plan, to reveal all of himself to the world through our unity as we function individually. I finally want to just discuss this, this issue of worldliness, particularly with words. Within these dynamics of Scripture that discuss the body of Christ, there's this, uh, this diversity element where we say, well, there's a foot and there's an eye and there's a hand and these are all different parts. But we've got to have some sense. We can't just say, oh, well, you're just out there being an eye and I guess I don't know what it means to be an eye. So whatever you think, you know, like it, it's not just completely open, right? We all have certain standards of behavior. Those standards of behavior, by the way, are the fruits of the Spirit. Here's something I'd like to bring up to sensitize us to. We can't take the words, we can't take words out of the mouth of Christ, stuff them full of our own, and then put them back in the mouth of Christ to use them against our brothers and sisters. And here's what I mean by that. Take the word gentle. Certainly there is an objective meaning of the word gentle, where is that meaning to be found? It's not to be found in the culture. It's to be found in Christ. So here's the question. Was Christ ever not gentle? Which would be saying, just so, just so you don't accidentally commit heresy, which would be saying that Christ sometimes did not have the fruit of the Spirit. Was Jesus ever not gentle? Well, that would be a, that would be a very difficult, uh, heretical thing to say, that Jesus was ever not gentle. Uh, the same with the word love. Was Jesus ever, again, full, don't commit heresy. No, Jesus was always loving. So when you decide to evaluate either your behavior or someone else's using words like loving or gentle, just make sure you're not using those words as they are defined by the culture, but as they are defined by Christ. Was Jesus, when Jesus was cleansing the temple, did he cease being gentle? Or loving. When Jesus called a Gentile woman a dog, did he cease being gentle or loving? When Jesus pronounced upon cities and Pharisees, did he cease being gentle or loving? Was he gentle or loving when he told Simon he was acting like the devil? Well, absolutely he was. Jesus is never not loving. Jesus is never not gentle. Let's use the definition of those words. How? By the behavior of our Lord, who is always loving and gentle. Was Jesus firm on the truth when he healed people with, with no strings attached? When he fed the poor? Was Jesus firm on the truth when, when he did many miracles not always leading to a conversion, by the way. Well, hold on here. Uh, we have no choice but to say yes. Jesus was always firm on the truth, even when he was functioning in categories that were almost entirely what we would call mercy ministries. He was always firm on the truth. You see, my definition of firm on the truth or my definition of gentle or loving those can't come from the world and retain their authority. They have to come from Christ. 
So when I understand what those words mean, I have to make sure that I understand them by Christ's example himself. Satan is at work in Christian friendship. He seeks to divide the people of God so that we and the world cannot see the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. That's his people, lost people, saved people from seeing Christ, all of Christ. So let's resist the devil and make him flee. Let me pray. Gracious God, we pray for faith. 